there are no real commodities. There's a, a personal relationship, there's a delivery system, there is service, uh, there is a history where you say, I can rely on this company, there are simplified processes or whatever. And the value is determined by all these factors and not by the product as such alone. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimising business performance. Scaling up organisations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesise what I've learnt along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello, today I'm talking to Herman Simon. Herman is a pricing genius. He studied pricing as a professor. He did a load of theoretical stuff. And then he decided that he would start a consulting business and see whether any of this theory actually worked in practice. So they now have a huge global consulting business around pricing and value equations for clients. He's written another cracking book called Hidden Champions, where he looks at the, I guess it's a difference between Germany and the UK and the US, because in Germany, there are lots of mid-market family-owned businesses, whereas that structurally tends not to happen in in the UK and the US. So he's written about those hidden champions in Germany, and that's a fantastic book. But today we're talking about his core expertise, which is pricing. We're gonna talk a little bit about price elasticity and how to determine the right price and how to determine value. And towards the end, we're also gonna talk about what drives profit and is that price, is that cutting costs or is it driving sales? So there's an equation in there, which I think is very compelling. A fantastic conversation. I really enjoy talking to Herman. Uh, he's got another book coming out in a few months' time, and so maybe we'll get him back on to talk about his next book, which is about is not about price, but is about profit. Fantastic conversation. I'm sure he'll enjoy it as much as I did. Hello, I'm Herman Simon. I've lived many different lives. My first life was as a farm boy in a very remote region of Germany, the Eiffel, which was called the Siberia of Germany. Then I got into academia and uh, taught as a professor for 16 years, but I thought I should change the world. And so I founded a consulting company, Simon Kutcher and Partners, which is today the global leader in price consulting. So these are the many worlds which I also described under the same title in my autobiography. How did you go from being farm boy to professor? Like that's, it's quite a leap. You, you must have lived in a family with books who, you know, a joy of learning to become an academic, or was it like a total disconnect from the rest of your family? We had very few books on our small farm. And in between, there was an important phase of my life, uh, which was the Air Force. I wanted to become a Starfighter pilot. Starfighter was the main fighter jet at that time in the 1960s. But I failed due to color blindness. But this time in the military made me curious and interested. Then I Uh, studied and I caught fire even in in theory. And um, 
got my, my doctorate and uh, after that a professor. And very important were also three years I spent in the US at uh, top universities, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Stanford and Harvard. But after 16 years, I was fed up of teaching and research and uh, thought I should do something practical. And we founded uh, the company, which now has 1,500 people in 39 offices all over the world. Wow. What are you going to do next? I'm now 73. And um, I take a little more time. I know I'm no longer in management. Uh, and I... I'm a traveling poet, so I give a lot of speeches all over the world. Uh, right now, I have a very quiet period, but last year I was six weeks traveling in China. So I enjoy that, but it got a little too much. So I it also enjoys a quiet period, which Corona brought to us now. <laughs> Fantastic. And how? Uh, where, where are you speaking to us from today? I am right now in Bonn, Germany, in my, my library on the Rhine, I could show you the Rhine, which is the, not only the biggest river, but some kind of, of soul of Germany. Oh, and what, uh, what are the implications for coronavirus in Bonn today? Are you still in lockdown? Are you out of lockdown? Is everything back to normal? Everybody is wearing masks, uh, but the number of active cases is very small. In a population of 330,000, uh, there is about, about 10 active cases. So it's almost extinguished, but still we have to be cautious. Tomorrow I'm going to Berlin. That's my first flight after a few months. Uh -huh. So I'm a little nervous uh, with, the, with the plane, but uh, the whole thing is under control in Germany, I would say. Okay, fantastic. So you've written two fantastic books about pricing. You're the pricing guy. How, how did, was your academic research on this subject? And so, and you just felt it was so misunderstood that you were compelled to create the consultancy so that people could do it properly? As I said, I, I came from my studies from theory. We had uh, very quantitative mathematical studies. And um, one of the professors I admired, he was teaching price theory that was more or less mathematics. And what I, I considered as a challenge was to apply these things. And that's basically what we did. We, we applied the methods, the models developed in theoretical economics to practical problem. And that became the foundation of our company, which now has, as I said, 1,500 people. And that's even for a consultancy on a global scale, that's substantial. Yes. And so we applied theory to practice. That is our foundation and, and development. And so often when theories get applied in practice like that, you identify the bit of the theory that doesn't work in real life or yeah. uh, was worked retrospectively but doesn't work proactively? When we started, our idea was to apply econometrics to pricing problems. Econometrics is a science where you use historical data to measure how demand reacts to price changes. And that did not work. And there's a very clear reason. In these uh, matters, you cannot learn from history because when you have a price problem, like now in the corona crisis, historical data are useless. 
We are usually called in as consultants when a new product was introduced, when a new competitor appeared, uh, when the internet um, created a new e-commerce area. And mostly you could forget about the historical data. So the original foundation we wanted to build our company on proved a failure. But then we had new methods, other methods, which helped us really, I, I think, uh, provide value to our clients. And so out of that vast body of knowledge and, and experience, what should we share today? What, what should, be th should we be thinking about? How should people think about pricing now with coronavirus then? This is the most important sentence I say in our conversation. Pricing is not primarily about price. Pricing is about value. Or more precisely, the value perceived by the customer. If the customer perceives a high value, he or she is willing to pay a high price. If the perceived value is lower, you have to offer the product at lower price. And this is actually old wisdom, but it took me decades to really understand this. Old wisdom, because the Romans 2000 years ago had the same word for value and price. It's fritium, like precious, where it survived. So price equals value. This is the most important equation of pricing. Of course, it contains a huge challenge, challenge, understanding the value. This is a very complex thing. It's not only the quality of the product, it's the brand, it's the familiarity, so many different factors which determine the value. And our job as price consultants is to understand and to quantify the value. The price is always a number, so we need a number for the value. And I can assure you, that is a big challenge. And so where, uh, to help people understand that, do you, you've got some case studies or some examples you can Yeah, let me give you me a, a case uh, uh, which we have frequently. Let's think of a new model of a Porsche. Porsche. About 18 months before the product is introduced into the market, we try to quantify the value. How do we do that? We put the new model under top secrecy in a big hall in a hotel or somewhere together with four, five, six competitive cars, which Porsche actually buys for this or rents for this purpose. Then we invite potential buyers of the cars. They cannot test drive it. It's too early for that. And it's of course secret. They have to leave their mobile phones outside the room, not to take photos. And uh, then we have a very sophisticated uh, questioning method with computers interactive, which allows us ultimately to establish the value in numbers. And uh, there can be surprising results. For instance, when one model was introduced, the Porsche Cayman, that's a hard top and its predecessor is uh, what we call in German a Caprio, uh, how do you call that, the, where you can remove the roof. Cabriolet. Usually the hard top is 10% cheaper 
than the convertible. Mm -hmm. But we proved that in this case, they could set the price 10% higher than for the convertible. We run a simulation model where we predict how many cars they are going to sell, what their market share will be at different prices. And uh, our, our uh, forecast was even exceeded in spite of the fact that the car was 10% more expensive than the convertible, totally contrary to an industry wisdom. And in this special case, this requires a strong CEO. At that time, that was Wendling uh, Wiedeking because it takes courage to go 10% higher when everybody tells you you should go 10% lower. So the difference is actually 20% yeah. relative to the price of the predecessor model, the uh, Porsche Boxster. So this is a typical case how we work. Our, our uh, very big area of us is, for instance, pharmaceuticals, uh, where it's also very difficult to establish the value. Uh, that's efficacy, side effects, uh, comfort, life expectancy, etc. And of course, we have to combine that with the financial system of the respective countries, because with the NHS in the UK, that's very different from the US, again, different from Germany. So each country practically has a different system, how they pay for new pharmaceuticals. And uh, so these are really complex issues. Well, and in that case, I guess as well, the, certainly in the case of the UK, they have a mechanism for saying what they think they should the price of the product should be to the NHS. So I guess you're having to persuade them, yes. not, not only that the value, but that, that your value judgment and the price are, are correct. Yes, of course, you have to support that uh, through research empirically, and then the negotiations with the public authorities play also a very important role. And what about smaller organizations, not, maybe not Porsche or pharmaceutical companies? How should they be thinking about trying to get a sense of value in the marketplace? We work a lot for these so-called hidden champions. That's a, uh -huh. coin, a, a term I coined many years ago. These are mid-sized global or continental market leaders. They're very innovative, so they often introduce new products, technical products, but also uh, chemical products, etc., or software. And they have essentially the same problem. They have to find out what the value is. They know typically what the costs are, but this is only one aspect of the price formation and price decision. You have essentially three factors, cost, value as the most important one, and the most neglected one, the most difficult one, and then the competitive prices. But again, compared to competitive prices, you must know what the value of your product relative to the value of competitive products is. Is it more valuable? Is it less valuable? Is it comparable? This is the only way to be rather safe to get the optimal price. And it occurs to me that if you take your example from Porsche, you only care about the value as perceived by somebody who might buy a Porsche. Or he's yes. going to buy a Porsche. I mean, yeah. if somebody's thinking about buying a, BM, a buying a Mercedes or a BMW, you don't care that they think the Porsche is in poorer value because they were never going to be a customer. So you've got to define your yeah. core customer as well as a precursor Absolutely. to then trying to work out the value. Yeah, that's leading us to another huge <laughs> landscape, I would say. 
what we call market segmentation. Yes. So of course, Porsche is not interested or not much interest in the opinion of a person or the evaluation of a person who would never buy a Porsche. So selecting the customers and also the people who we interview is the first important step that we get the target groups, the segment uh, right and base our evaluation on this relevant target group. Uh, but I think that is the first step in marketing in general, that you know and determine which segment and target group do you want to address with your product. And I suppose there's also a bit of a chicken and egg because you also want to make sure that you know your costs or you can, have an, you can work out what you think the cost should be, who you think the purchaser is, and then you would only want to bring the product to market if you can get, get the value to make Absolutely. enough money. Um, we often start very early in the research and development phase. When a company has an idea and uh, the target group is not well defined, but they have some notion of the target group. And then we try to find out what would this group be willing to pay for this product. And we call that target pricing. And from that, we derive target costing. Let's assume we want to address a low income group in a, in a developed country or a large group in an emerging country. And we would find out they are only willing to pay $100 or 100 pounds for a smartphone. Then if the company wants to develop a smartphone for this group, we would say you must do it under $100. Is that possible? The engineers have to find out. If that's not possible, we say leave your hands off because it doesn't make sense to uh, develop a, a phone which costs 250 and we want to sell it to people who have only, who can only spend $100. Uh-huh. I guess you're also, you mentioned earlier, just in passing the power of brand. Is an iPhone more expensive to manufacture than a, a Samsung? And, and, is, and the difference in the retail price is, is brand. It's brand. But behind the brands, there are also some factors. Um, when you look at the origin of the iPhone and also other Apple products, there was a pioneer. They introduced the product at a high price. First, the iPhone was $599, and then they reduced a few months later to $399, but that established a price image. Then the ease of use, absolutely revolutionary. Then the iTunes system, so Apple is offering a whole system, but you can say all that is uh, condensed in the, in the brand. Yeah. And uh, while the average price of a phone over the years has been about uh, 250 to 300 euros, Apple was over 600 on the average. So you can say the brand value of Apple is twice as high as that of competing products. Samsung has caught up a little, but it's still, still a big difference. And then if people once had an iPhone and have made the experience, practically all of them are buying an iPhone again. They don't switch from iPhone to Huawei or another brand. 
Ah, okay. So people who have the experience even develop a stronger loyalty and preference for this preferred brand. For instance, Smile in washing machines, they have a loyalty rate of 98%. And, and that even goes beyond generations. Let me take my own family. My mother had a Miele machine, my wife has a Miele machine, my daughter has a Miele machine. And they were never thinking of anything else. But behind this is real performance, excellent quality, a good system, what you could call in the case of Apple, an ecosystem of software, service, Siri, etc. Okay. And uh, that makes Apple the most profitable company in the world. It's not really true. The most profitable company is Saudi Aramco, the oil giant from Saudi Arabia, but I think that's not comparable to other companies. Uh, among normal companies, Apple is the most profitable in the world. And yet their, and their goal, do you think their goal was to have the small market, that, you know, 20 odd percent market share and sort yeah. of 70 or 80 percent of the profitability? Was that, yeah. was that their goal when they started or was it, did, they, did they stumble across that and then, and then not, I, and not, not I ruin it? I think that this was the goal of Steve Shops in 19, uh, in 27 or 28, when he, but it developed over time. And uh, of course, they're trying to defend that. And I, I'm surprised how successful they are in defending this position, position because technologically, the others have caught up. Uh -huh. but still, the brand builds uh, a barrier to increasing the value share in the market for the others. Yes. And I mean, it, I mean it's interesting because it becomes then you know, as you said, your mother, your wife, and your daughter buying a washing machine and not considering an alternative because then it they becomes... They didn't even compare the prices. Yes, it's not, it's not about price. It's about, yeah. it, becomes, it becomes a... The washing machine you pick becomes part of your of personal identity. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And what about um, when you're thinking about in a marketplace and you've got a product and your product might be the same as other people's. You know, what, what do you do to try and drive up the value? You know, if you're, if you're one of these uh, hidden champions that you're working with and you're in a commodity, what looks like a commodity space, how, do you, how does the CEO think about a process or a, you know, a, a methodology to think about where they could get more value? First, you have to understand the product. Does the product in itself have more value. If that's not the case, so the product as such you could call a commodity, then you have to address the circle around the product. Could we be better in service, uh, in, in packaging? Do we have advantage with a, a brand name, a good brand name? Can we be more international? Uh, can we uh, cooperate with others? So all kinds of factors which uh, come into play and I've often been asked uh, when I gave a speech after the speech water is a commodity H2O and how can you differentiate that usually there was a bottle ideally of plastic on my lectern and I threw it to the guy who asked not if it was from class is that, is that water yeah that's water and uh, when I travel everywhere in the world, in each 
mini bar in a hotel, I find Evian water. And it costs 10 times as much as the local water. But I would contend that in a blind test, you probably couldn't distinguish between the two. <laughs> so this is a, a way of value creation, having obviously a global brand and being able through their distribution and sales system to get into the mini bars of the hotels. Why does a hotel in, in, in Shanghai or even in a small city in China have Evian in the mini box and not the local water? Yeah, there must be a reason. From an ecological point of view, this is questionable. What does happen? Why do we find Evian everywhere in the world? Because obviously the marketing, the branding, the, the distribution system creates value which is higher than the logistics costs. Otherwise it would not happen. So if you want to abolish that, you have to increase the logistics costs beyond the value the brand creates. Oh, there are so many, many opportunities. Uh, I, 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 sometimes that's not totally true because if you have an, uh, on, on, on a stock exchange type market, commodities are traded. But when it comes to consumers and even to business customers, there are no real commodities. There's a, a personal relationship, there's a delivery system, there is service, uh, there is a history where you say, I can rely on this company, there are simplified processes or whatever. And the value is determined by all these factors and not by the product as such alone. And so lots of the clients I work with have a set price for a thing. So they have a standard price for a standard thing. Yeah. And I guess what you're saying is that many of those other variables mean that they should have different prices for different things for different people. I guess what people refer to as value-based pricing rather than cost plus. Yeah, yeah. But people let me, find let me that. address two dimensions in, in this aspect. I, I already mentioned segmentation. So why should we have the same price for different customer groups who may be willing to pay different prices, higher or lower, maybe less or more price sensitive? The second aspect, which has become very important in recent years is, can we change the business model or the pricing systems? And uh, there are dozens now of opportunities. And let me give you one commodity type product, tires for trucks and buses. And the global leader there is Michelin, the French company. Years ago, they developed a new tire which lasted 25% longer. Now the old way would be you charge 25% more. Instead of 1,000 pounds, you charge 1,250. No trucking company would accept that because their anchor is the price of 1,000, which they have been paying for forever. Now, what did Michelin do? They introduced a price per kilometer. So they have contracts with specific trucking companies or with uh, cities in the US for school buses where they charge according to the kilometer driven. That's anyway recorded in most uh, of these organizations. So it's not, a, not an additional effort. Uh -huh. And then 
they can easily get 25% more because for the customer, it's still economical and there is no historical anchor. So it's a totally different price model. They changed what we call the price metric. The price is not per tire, but the price is per kilometer. And for airplanes, it's per landing because the wear of an airplane tire is defined by the landings, the number of landings. You can go to from one-dimensional to multi-dimensional prices. Uh, for instance, we invented the so-called bahn card or rail card for the German Railroad Corporation, Deutsche Bahn. <laughs> How does it work? We did that in 93, and uh, the challenge the Deutsche Bahn board gave us was, we want to be more competitive to the car. And in the car, the consumers only count the gasoline. And at that time, that was about 15 cents per kilometer, and the price for the railroad was 24. So there's no way to compete with the car if people count like that. It would have mean, meant we have to cut the price by 50%. So what we did, we made a two-dimensional price system because the car is also a two-dimensional price system. There are a fixed cost for insurance, for tax, and, and other fixed costs of the car. Yeah. So we introduced the bond card, which today costs about, for the first class, 500 euros. And this card gives you the right of a 50% discount for the duration of one year. It means that with a 50% discount, the price per kilometer is below the price for the car. Yes. So once the consumer has spent the money for the bank card, driving using the railroad is cheaper than using the car. So well, and also transition from a one-dimensional to a two-dimensional system. Yeah, but there's the other sort of then behavioral human behavior kicks in, which you have now spent five hundred pounds on this thing, so I'm going to use it. It's a bit like Amazon Prime. You know, I've paid Amazon Prime, so now I'm going to buy everything from Amazon because yeah. I feel compelled. Uh, Amazon Prime is the same system, two-dimensional, and um, the truth is that's it was a number a few years ago. I don't know whether it's still right now the number. The, the actual discount people get is not 50%, it was 28% a few years ago. Because many don't even use the railroad to achieve the break-even point to get the 500 euros back. But still they huh. find every time a positive experience because I say, oh, I save 50%. Huh. So there's a so whole thing around. Yeah, well, it means that it means uh, Deutsche Bahn now have a recurring revenue stream. They have a customer yes, that yes. they have a relationship yes. rather than just a transactional ticket. Uh, I think now they sell about uh, six million of these cards. Oh, blimey! It feels very similar to you know Costco as well. You know that whole you know you buy yeah, you buy a membership card Costco, and then. Costco. The, the price of the card is very low, as I remembered from America many years ago. It was, it was more a membership card. The price component was not uh, that important, but that may have changed. I don't know what's yeah. current. Uh, well, I just, I, I was just thinking, you know, the, the uh, but that's that's fantastic for 
it's a fantastic example for many of the clients that I work with to think about instead of charging per hour or per day, doing something to make, you know, to effectively put their price up, but then make the marginal cost comparison much smaller. You, you, you can apply that to many different sectors. Think of restaurants. What is the price metric of a restaurant today? It's a meal. So, so somebody comes in, sits on a table, and uh, pays 30 pounds for a meal. And he may sit for three hours, having some wine or whatever, but has a defined check, 30, 50 pounds or whatever. In Japan, in some restaurants and pubs, they have a time-based system where you pay for an hour per hour and within the hour you can consume as much as you want. But after an hour, you're kicked out, which means that in three hours, which are blocked by the guests in England or Germany, they get three guests who pay for an hour. Huh. So you get that, people are, that system, yes. I mean, people are not used to this system here. But that may be economically much better. What other great examples of, have you seen of interesting pricing models? Yeah, we have many, many new pricing models coming with the internet. Uh, flat rate. Flat rate is interesting, but also a little, a little dangerous, especially if your marginal costs are not zero. Why is it dangerous? First, because the most intensive users are buying the flat rate and they may block your capacity. The other point is there may be intensive users who without a flat rate would be willing to pay more. So you are sacrificing willingness to pay. Uh, another model very, very popular today is freemium, where you have a basic version free and uh, the premium version, you have to pay like Spotify, LinkedIn, and you, you name them. There, the trick is to really find the optimal difference between the basic and the premium version. If the basic version is too poor, you are not attracting enough people. If it's too rich, people are not switching to the premium version. And uh, I think Spotify is a good system because in the basic version, you have to listen to uh, advertising. People want to avoid that, so they're willing to pay $9.99 per month. But that's also, then you have um, go as you pay. The Michelin system fits into this. Uh, this usually requires uh, automatic measurement. So only if you don't have to measure the actual use manually, you, you, you can do that. An old system, I said, I'm com coming from a farm. You know how water was priced when I was a child? According to the head of people and the head of cattle. So the guy from the waterworks came and said, you are four people in your, in your household and you have 10 cows so the number of units to pay for the water was 14 and only after water meters were introduced that was in 1957 uh, the actual consumption of the water was uh, became the basis for 
the, the price. Uh, you could say a hair cutter. Typically, they price according to a haircut costs X pounds or dollars. They could price according to time. So if your haircut is more complex or you want more, more uh, sophisticated hairstyling, you pay per hour. So there's the unlimited opportunities to change the metric to make you less comparable to competitors. Uh, but of course, uh, you mentioned behavior uh, psychology. People have to get used to new systems. They may reject them. So you have to convince them to accept the new system. Do you have any... The big case is uh, software or, or computers, cloud software as a service, where you go from buying the hardware or the software to using it and paying for it like electricity, like a utility. Are there some examples that didn't work out? that you did as a business, you did some research and you, you were absolutely sure that this was going to work and then it just was an absolute disaster. You, you read a lot about pay what you want and the dreamers of this world always like this system. Pay what you want. And I advise customers to avoid that. <laughs> uh, you, you can do it when small amounts are concerned, like uh, say entry, entrance uh, fees for, for public museums, two or three pounds, people will pay that. And always a famous case is, um, is called up Radiohead. They, they had a, a music piece which they offered as pay what you want and uh, six million people bought it at an average price of six, but I think that's an exception. For a restaurant, a hotel, or other service business, I strongly advise again. <laughs> it's streaming. There is a certain percentage of the consumers who will exploit the system and pay nothing, just disappear or pay a minimum amount. It doesn't work. We have had uh, cases, or let me give you a case where we were not an advisor, but I was convinced from the very beginning that it would fail. That's the Segway, this driving uh, machine which costs in the beginning $5,000 and today it even costs more, but it became a failure because I think the value, it's, it's, it's a gadget, but the value compared to bicycle is, is rather limited. So in my opinion, it was much too expensive to become a market success. But of course, the costs were, were so high that they couldn't afford a much lower price. So this is a case where the value of a product was not supporting the high price you needed uh, because of the high costs. And you might, as Jeffrey Moore would say, you might sell some to the early adopters, but then your value, your value needs to change to get, to get it across the chasm. And you have many, many uh, products where the inventors and developers are technical enthusiasts and uh, people don't estimate, ultimately don't, don't estimate the product. And uh, this is especially true for many of the new technical gadgets, uh, internet products. Of course, the, the smartphone makes like life very difficult for all the other things. It's music, it's camera, it's roadmaps, it's everything. 
So all the other uh, categories are more or less extinguished, like uh, spaces in evolution. <laughs> How should CEOs think about price elasticity? When I speak to CEOs, often I say, you know, what if we put the price up? And it makes them really nervous because they immediately think that volumes will go down and that the market has knowledge of their price or knowledge of other prices. Is, is there a way in which they should be thinking about that or is a way they could test it or? First, you are absolutely right. Price is a fear factor for most managers, especially not so much for CEOs or CFOs, but for, for sales managers, etc. Because they are afraid that they will use volume, they will use market share, and they hardly ever calculate what is the effect on profit. One case, a former board member of Metro, the large cash and carry, and they also have a large retail arm. He said, we had a promotion where we uh, cut the price uh, according to the value added tax. That's 19% in Germany. So I said, you don't pay value added tax. He said, it was a huge success. The stores were full, so much traffic, etc. And I asked him, how about profit? He wasn't thinking of that, of that. And I made a calculation, a rough calculation. They would have had to double the volume in order to recover the reduction of the 19%. And there was no way that they could double the volume. Totally unrealistic. Very often I ask a simple question. Let's assume you reduce your price by 20% and your marginal costs are 60 of the, of the old price. How much more do you have to sell to get the same profit? Spontaneous answer is usually 20%. That's true for revenue, but it's not true for profit because you have to double the profit. If you have 40% margin, unit margin, and you cut off 20%, you have to double the volume to get the same profit. People are not intuitively thinking of that. It's a simple calculation, but you have to go beyond revenue and say, oh, what happens to our unit margin? Oh, it's halved. Of course, then we have to double the volume to get the same profit. So I, I, I just published a book in Germany. We will have it in English in a few months. It's the rough translation of the title is, no company has ever failed from making profit. <laughs> Sounds even better in, in German. And uh, there I elaborate on, on this and I found that most companies are revenue-driven, market-share-driven, sales-driven, and only about one quarter are truly profit-oriented, who make yeah. one step uh, more in calculating what a price cut or a price increase means to profitability. And of course, the price elasticity is a, is a tricky issue. It's difficult to measure, especially under the current circumstances with Corona. For instance, I, I fly tomorrow to Berlin, my first flight, after months, and 
there are only a few flights, but the prices are extremely low. I think that's total nonsense. <laughs> the people who fly now are the ones who, who must fly, who do not fly because of the low price, but they have to go somewhere and don't want to take the railroad or by car, etc. So willingness to pay is not the issue for them. Yes. But they still charge the low price. And just to give you a number on the effectiveness of these three profit drivers, price, sales volume, and cost, we can say roughly the following. The elasticity, that's not the price elasticity, but the profit elasticity relative to price is about 10. It means if I increase the price by 1% without losing volume, and with 1% you usually don't lose uh, significant volume, the profit goes up 10%. 10 times higher, the percentage change in profit than in price. For cost, this elasticity is about six. So if you can cut your cost by 1%, your profit usually goes up by 6%. And for sales is about four. So if your sales volume goes up by 1%, your profit goes up by 4%. And the reason why sales has the lowest efficacy with regard to profit is that marginal costs go up and they usually eat a large part of the additional volume you sell. So price 10 times higher than the price increase, cost six times higher than the cost decrease, sales four times higher than the sales increase. I think that's a great place to finish that I have piece my new because book, which will, you will see in about six months, I think. <laughs> uh, Herman, what is, it, what is it that you know now that you wish you'd known? Two things. As I said, I come from, from theory and there were all these curves, price elasticity, uh, demand curve, etc. But I did not understand the role of value, that behind all this is value. As the Romans said, Value equals price, it's the two sides of the same coin. And the second insight is, when you had asked me 40 years ago, almost 50 years ago, when I was a doctoral student, I would have said pricing is more or less similar across industry sectors. Today I know it's very, very different. You really have to be an industry expert to be able to give advice. And in our company, we are organized according to, so we have experts for pricing for banks, for telecommunications, for cars, for pharmaceutical. The habits, the history, etc., are very different. And also what you can do in various industries, depending on the information, whether you have big data, whether personal relationships play a role. So the role of value and the variety of industrial uh, pricing practices are two insights which I should have known 50 years ago. <laughs> Brilliant. And as well as your books, you've got Compressions, Confessions of a Pricing Man, uh, which is the, I think you described it as the easier read. 
Um, and then you've got the practitioner's handbook. The title, by the way, from David Ogilvy, advertising <laughs> guy, who wrote, who wrote once a book, Confessions of an Advertising Man. And I was a little showing off by saying of the pricing man. <laughs> <laughs> what other business books or books even along the way have had an impact on you that you think other people should pick up? I recommend only one book which I really enjoyed and uh, which, which enriched me. That's Adventures of a Bystander by Peter Trucker. It's a famous okay. thinker. That's the autobiography of Peter Trucker. And I became a long year friend of Peter Trucker. And I learned so much from him. Uh, it ended uh, with a sad experience on uh, November 11. 2005, I was in Mexico City, and I had made an appointment with Peter Trucker, who lived in Los Angeles, for the next day, November 12. On November 11, in the evening, I called his home and said, uh, his wife answered the phone, and I asked her, Doris, is the appointment for tomorrow standing? And he, she said, Peter died this morning. <sighs> oh but I have him in, in, in very good memory and I learned a lot from him and uh, I, I very much enjoyed this book, Adventures of a Bystander. Fantastic. I haven't read that. I will go and, uh, I'll go and buy that now. Herman, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank you very much indeed. For giving Thank us, you. Giving I enjoyed it very much, Tom. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. And there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up, high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse, and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me. Share your questions and comments and, and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.